This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 214. Today we welcome William Bookestein to the program to speak about the Heidelberg Catechism. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. My name is Camden Busey. We're back for another excellent episode. We have some great people with us today. Let me introduce to you, we uh, first, the pastor of Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Ringo's, New Jersey. We're pleased to welcome back Jim Cassidy. Welcome back to the program, Jim. It's good to have you on again. Even a most excellent episode. Most it's excellent good to be here. Episode, yes. <laughs> we are so excited to have Jim back. And uh, are you calling from uh, home today, or are you in Princeton? No, I'm. I'm in my study at, at yeah. the church. Wonderful. So uh, Ringo's, New Jersey. I know that a couple of people have visited on their on their travels to the East Coast. So if anybody is around and looking for a church in Ringo's area, Jim's there at Calvary OPC along with our friend Jeff Waddington. Jim and I are very happy to welcome to the program for the first time today, William Bookestein, who is pastor of Covenant Reformed Church in Carbondale, Pennsylvania. Uh, he also previously taught in a Christian school for several years, but uh, he's uh, serving in the pastoral ministry today. And we're very pleased to welcome him to the program. Thanks for joining us, William. It's great to have you. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, you're welcome. We're, we're excited because today we're going to be speaking about a new book from Reformation Heritage Books. I've got it in my hand here, The Quest for Comfort, The Story of the Heidelberg Catechism. And uh, I'm particularly interested today to speak about this for a couple reasons. Uh, one is that, uh, you know, Jim and I and, and many of us on the program are coming often from the tradition of the Westminster Standards. So we're very excited to, uh, to talk and speak about another very rich Reformed tradition that's coming from uh, a Dutch heritage, uh, and and uh, we're going to be speaking also about some of this uh, German influence here with the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, but we also uh, are excited because this book is a children's book, and uh, we're going to use it as an opportunity to speak about the history of the Heidelberg Catechism, but this book was written and published uh, with the goal of, of enriching uh, family time together and also to provide a, a very rich and useful and edifying resource uh, to younger children. So we'll, we'll speak about all that in just a moment, but first we need to pause and uh, bring up any news uh, or announcements. Jim, do we have anything to mention? Yeah, Camden, I'd like to mention um, our effort as a presbytery here in New Jersey to reach out to the Monmouth County area. Uh, we have identified uh, Red Bank, New Jersey as a potential uh, mission field for a OPC church plant. Uh, we do have a website up and running. It's called redbankreformed.com. So if you know anyone in the Red Bank area in Monmouth County, New Jersey, uh, some of the other surrounding areas include Asbury Park, uh, Freehold, New Jersey, um, <clears throat> and many other places. So if you know anyone in that uh, general vicinity and they're looking for a, um, a solid reformed, confessionally reformed uh, Christ-centered gospel preaching church. Um, please uh, direct them to that website and let us know about it. Great. Um, also, just we should mention the uh, upcoming Westminster Conference on Science and Faith that's going to be on April 14th of this year, and there are going to be several speakers um, who, uh, of course, we know 
uh, Vern Poitras, um, Dr. Oliphant, Bill Egger, uh, Dave Garner, and, and many others who are going to be talking about uh, the topic of science, human origins, and human dignity. Mm-hmm. So if you want uh, more information about that, go to the Westminster website, wts.edu, and um, you can find some more information on how to register and, and things of that nature. Yeah. So I plan on being there, and um, you know, uh, I would recommend it for folks who are interested in the subject. Yeah, that's excellent. It's a timely subject, too, because uh, we just did an episode on the historical Adam, uh, and also uh, we think about uh, Dr. Peter N's book that recently came out on uh, the evolution of Adam, and uh, this is a highly contested subject and one that deserves uh, our careful attention because it deals not only with human origin but but also covenantal theology and the doctrine of Scripture. And and so this is going to be an excellent conference to come to a, an understanding of, of what, unfortunately, uh, most of science is trying to argue against what seems to be what I and what we're convicted of is the clear teaching of Scripture. Uh, so this is a very important subject and uh, one that is timely as well. So if you can, register for the conference if you can make it out here. It's often very affordable. Many, most of the time the conferences here are free. I'm, I'm imagining that this one will be free, but if not, it'll be very minimal expense relative to other conferences at other places. So check that out and uh, also stay tuned for further resources on the subject. Is there anything else, guys, uh, that we need to mention before we dive into the Heidelberg Catechism? Seeing none, I will uh, move on in our docket uh, to the next uh, point of uh, point, point of order. Mr. Moderator. Yes. Thank you. you have to please uh, address me as Mr. Moderator now. And, and uh, if you want to talk to William, you have to say Mr. Moderator. You have to go through me. You have to say Mr. Moderator. Okay. That's one point of parliamentary procedure that... Presbyterians and Reformed folk will laugh at, and everyone else listening will roll their eyes. We'll wonder what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So we'll move on. But we have this excellent book here in front of us. And no, no kidding here. Uh, this is not in jest. A very fantastic little book from Reformation Heritage Books, The Quest for Comfort, The Story of the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, this is also illustrated beautifully. William, could you just describe to us a little bit about your desire to uh, to write this book, to produce it? What What is the need that you saw? And then uh, also help us uh, to understand or just describe to us a little bit about the whole process with the illustrations and everything. I'd love to hear it. Yeah, sure. Well, I think in terms of the need, um, just looking at it from a pastoral perspective, um, children grow up, at least a a lot of children grow up memorizing the catechism, one catechism or another in our tradition. It's the Heidelberg. Um, So the desire was to introduce the book to children in a, in a vivid, exciting way so that, you know, even as young children may, may not know much of the doctrine, but they have a category in their mind for, uh, for the Heidelberg. And um, so that, that was our desire to, you know, to create a, an interest level in, in, this, in, this, um, in this document. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the other thing is that children, at least children are children. We have three children, my wife and I do. Um, they don't just read books, they live books. And they you know, books are such an important part of their lives. So we'll hear our, our kids, you know, my son will say to my, our daughter, um, you know, Eva, you be Lady de Winter and I'll be D'Artagnan as they, as they play <laughs> out a scene from the Three Musketeers. Or, you or know, one just, of my friend's children says Dardignan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> That's the, uh, the American pronunciation, right, I think. Right. Um, so I think, yeah, we just want to, we just want to give them something to grab onto, uh, as they're learning the, um, uh, 
the doctrine. Mm. So I guess that was kind of kind of a pastoral desire. We have we have young children, and and so it was near and dear to my heart. And I think also a lot of um, a lot of literature, children's literature today, even Christian literature, has sort of this this Pollyannish approach where you know just think happy thoughts and everything's going to be okay. And that's just not the world that um, that children are growing up in. Um, you know, the theme of this book is, um, you know, includes that of, of suffering and, and yeah. uh, opposition. And that's, you know, that's the world that our kids are growing up in. So, you know, I just wanted to also introduce our kids to, uh, the, you know, the history of being a, a person who follows Jesus. And that's not always, it's not easy. It's, it's a hard life. So I think that's some of the background, mm-hmm. um, some of the reasons in terms of the procedure or the, the process, um, it's been really a lot of fun to work with one of my best friends in the area in which I minister. Evan Hughes mm-hmm. is the illustrator. And so we just, uh, I just sent him a, a draft of, of the manuscript. And then we sat down together and came up with some ideas for, uh, for e- illustrating each of the, each of the spreads. And, um, he just did an excellent job. He's got, I think a style that, that works really well with, um, with 16th century stories. It's kind of a woodcut yeah, uh, yeah. approach. So I think it worked really well. Um, so it's been, it's been great. He's, he's, he's done a wonderful job in my opinion. No, I, I agree. It really is uh, a beautiful thing to look at. And, and the style does seem to fit the story in, in a, in a really interesting way. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, at what, what age level do you think you're, you're targeting here with this writing? Cause it's not just simple, you know, three words per page type thing. There's actually some substance here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so. we've, um, we found it that we found it well received for children, say from three years old to 10. Now the younger age, uh, kids will find it beneficial to have it be read to them, obviously. But, um, yeah, we wanted that. We wanted the pictures to be appealing for, for younger children, but yeah, the themes are a little heavy. Mm. Um, uh, this book is, is a follow up to, uh, our previous book on the story of Guido de Bray, the author of the Belgic Confession, and that book ends with a hanging scene, and so it's yeah, you know, it's 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 a little startling, I think, for for young children. But again, it's it's a real story, and yeah. I think I think Evan dealt with that in a, in a tasteful way. Um, but yeah, some of the themes are are maybe for for more mature readers, but um, we think it's important to introduce serious themes even even to young children yeah now now let's uh, get into some of the details because uh, not only are children reciting the heidelberg and, and might not know the history but i would imagine many people in the churches don't know the history as well and especially if you're coming from more of the english and puritan tradition um, um we don't even often know the history of the westminster standards so <laughs> yeah uh, so this is this is really fascinating here who are some of the main figures that that you feature in the book and and what is their significance yeah, the, the, the three main feature uh, uh, folks who are featured in the book are first uh, Frederick III, who mm-hmm. was the elector or ruler of the German state called the Palatinate. Uh, we're talking 15, 1560s, mm-hmm. um, so a generation or so after the start of the, of the Reformation. Um, his professor, the professor in the college uh, of his city of Heidelberg was Zacharias Ursinus, uh, he's considered the the primary author of the catechism. Um, a secondary author, uh, usually cited, is Caspar Olivianus. He was a pastor uh, in that church. And there's been some debate about his role. Um, I think that I think modern scholarship has um, uh, set before us a pretty 
um, consistent sense that it was a, it was a team effort, and Frederick commissioned a team of scholars and pastors to put together a statement that would help unify his of uh, uh, his the people that he was he was governing because there was a lot of conflict after the Reformation. Uh, it broke out. The um, there became conflicts between Lutherans and uh, the Reformed, and and Frederick, uh, based on the advice from uh, Philip Melanchthon, Luther's right hand man, actually um, said, you know, I, I need to I need to present to our people what it is we believe to try to unify us, and the Heidelberg Catechism was the product of of that uh, decision, and that was published in 1563. Oh, I see, I see. And what were some of the influences on Frederick III, if, if he was the sovereign here, often we don't think of kings or rulers being too interested in Reformed theology or uh, or commissioning a composition of a new catechism for yeah. his people. So how, how in the world did that interest get placed in him, and, and, and how did this come about? Well, you know, there's, um, I mean, I think he, he was interested in, in theology, right. but he was also a politician of sorts. You know, I mean, he, there, there were some, some political reasons, I think, for, uh, for setting forth um, a unified view of, of doctrine. I mean, in our day, we, we, you know, we hear a lot about the separation of church and state. Of course, in the 16th century, there was no such thing. So um, he understood that in order to rule well, he needed to you know, to present a unified view of, of doctrine and life. And so I think that was part of his influence. Also, I think his, his wife, uh, Maria, was a, a godly influence on him. Um, and I think also, uh, you know, people took theology very seriously in those mm-hmm. days in, in a way that, that we don't see as often in our day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That That's interesting. Um, now, what about uh, Ursinus? What are some of his uh, distinctives or some of his other... Or the other works, what kind of stamp did he place upon the Heidelberg Catechism as its principal author? Yeah, Ursinus is um, is credited with 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 being the uh, the driver of the Catechism in its in its theological sense. He's a very sharp theologian. Um, we have uh, the commentary that Ursinus um, has uh, wrote rather. Um, classroom lectures on the Heidelberg Catechism, just very, very sharp theologically. So um, I, I think he's credited with uh, with that aspect, whereas Olivianus, at least historically, was credited with um, with couching this or maybe packaging this in a in a very pastoral tone. Um, so that's probably probably how both of those characters feature into into its production. Although again, it's it's um, I think Frederick very intentionally presented this catechism as a team effort. Mm-hmm. Uh, when when you read some of the historical documents, um, letters, for example, that Frederick would write introducing the catechism, um, he doesn't highlight individuals. He says, we, uh, the professors and pastors, theologians in Heidelberg, present this along with the counsel of others outside of Heidelberg as as our view of, of Christian doctrine. So in that sense, um, it, it was a, a very, you know, a unified team approach to to producing a confessional statement. Yeah. Now, Casper uh, Livianus uh, has a, has an interesting and troubling history, a big event in his life that also connected him to Frederick III. Uh, what was that? How It happens here early on in the book. What was that event that, that uh, linked Casper to Frederick III, and what significance did that have upon the history of the Heidelberg here? Yeah, it almost seems made up, but um, the what, what happened was that Olivianus was in college in... France and 
there was a prince, actually the, the son of Frederick III. Uh, he was there as well. And um, a number of boys, young men, went out in the, into the river uh, on a boat messing around. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another. And the, the boat capsized. And uh, Olivianus dives in trying to save uh, the son of uh, Frederick III, uh, Herman Lewis. Mm-hmm. Uh, was unable to do so, and at some point actually begins to drown himself and makes this vow uh, not so different than Luther, as you know, Luther's caught in this 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 lightning storm and says, "If if if Lord, if you deliver me, right. I'll become a, a priest." And something like that, I think, happened to Olivianus. You know, Lord, if you deliver me, if you rescue me, I'll I'll become a minister. And so Olivianus dives in to help, uh, but eventually needs to be saved himself and followed through on that on that vow. So it's it's an amazing link between. Uh, between Olivianus and Frederick. So uh, at some point, Olivianus in his ministry is is imprisoned for uh, preaching the gospel in uh, in his church, in his city. And Frederick hears about that, remembers that this was a man who had tried to save his son and petitions and, and actuates his release and eventually invites him to Heidelberg to to work on this on this uh, this catechism. Wow. I have a um, question about the <clears throat> kind of um, with that background in mind. Uh, the title of the book is interesting um, because I think it's it's getting at really the char- kind of one of the great characteristics of the Heidelberg, right? The first question and answer right. of the Heidelberg Catechism. So the quest for comfort. What is your only comfort in life and death, right? So um, – could you talk a little bit about the formation of that famous first question and answer? What are, you know, do you have any anecdotes in terms of its formulation, the background? And then maybe comment, if you would, a little bit as we compare um, the Heidelberg to, let's say, the Westminster Confession, Westminster's first uh, very famous question and answer, what is man's chief end? And um, why does the Heidelberg begin that way? Do you have any insight as to why maybe Westminster begins that way? Compare and contrast. I just wanted to get your mm-hmm. thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, again, I think one of the attributes the the uh, pr- attributes that's appreciated about the Heidelberg is um, is its warmth, its pastoral approach. Um, it, it it's sometimes compared, of course, with the Westminster. I I think um, I think they 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 harmonize with each other yeah, very well. So I I, I don't think they're uh, at odds with each other at all, no. but I think you know. Whereas the the, the Westminster um, emphasizes uh, uh, you know more of an objective approach to theology, the the catechism, the Heidelberg is perhaps more subjective. I mean, personal pronouns abound in the catechism. Uh, what is your only comfort in life and death? And you know, what is the resurrection? How does the resurrection benefit me? These, these kinds of questions are are thorough uh, throughout. And I think. I think, you know, the idea of comfort, first of all, um, just, I mean, just consider the context in which this document was born, 1560s. Uh, we're still in a, in a really tumultuous time in, uh, in Western Europe. Um, you know, the time in which this document was written, there was really no such thing as a, as, as a theology of comfort in, in the church. Uh, people lived in fear that, um, you know, that, that, uh, you know, there was just no way to know if mm-hmm. God was for them or against them, and so I think it was a it was a practical approach here, a, a, an inviting approach. Also, of course, since this is a catechism and meant to engage students, 
I think it's a very uh, a powerful way to start um, drawing the students in. What is your only comfort in life and in death? You know, I think it's 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 a really powerful question. We we uh, as a church we uh, took the occasion this summer to hit the streets in our town with a with a camera, video camera, and just ask people in our community, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Hmm. And it was it was it was a really powerful experience. A number of people just were shocked by the question. Right. <laughs> just, you you know, talk about that much. <laughs> yeah. I have no idea, you know, was, was some of the responses that we got. But, I mean, I think it caused people to wrestle. You know, some of the answers we received were, you know, human relationships or self-sufficiency or financial security or physical safety or, you know, even, even simple pleasures like bubble baths, music, um, you know, all good things. But really, your ultimate comfort, your only comfort in life and death? bubble bath i mean you know it's just i think it just really gets us to think (laughs) about about an ultimate question so i think that's um that's the that's the emphasis or that's the reason for that emphasis i think and then also um you know the reason that we we chose the the title the quest for comfort is you know as you mentioned question one ask the question what is your only comfort in life and death and the beautiful answer i'm you know I'm I with body and soul, both in life and death, have not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. And and then it goes on. But then question two says, How many things are necessary for you to know that you in this comfort may live and die happily? And then it sets three things. Uh, first, how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I'm delivered from all my sins and misery. And third, how I'm to be thankful to God for such deliverance. So I think in a sense the catechism itself sets us on a quest for comfort, to know these three things, our, our sin, uh, the salvation in Christ, and then to live a life of service. Uh, so um, I, I think the three parts, as well as these two questions, really set us on a quest for, for comfort. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Now, uh, does the, the Heidelberg Catechism, in terms of its historical intention, I mean, you talked about the political um, background to Frederick III and why he wanted to have a unified doctrine and things of that nature, but was the catechism originally either intended or used for the training of young people from, you know, day one right up to, you know, adulthood? Yeah, that's, that's I think, that, that was definitely one of its purposes, I mean, we need to un- understand as well that, um, you know, the literacy rates were were rather low. I mean, just education um, it, throughout the, you know, the populace of, of Frederick's kingdom, you know, was was not that high. So um, I th- this was used for the education of children, but for those who were just plain doctrinally and theologically illiterate. You know, the, the form, obviously, of question and answer is you know, is, is an ancient form of, of engaging mm-hmm. uh, on, on a topic. So I think the benefit was not just for children, but I think it was geared for children, which frankly makes us, me feel a little dumb today when, you know, you read through this doctrine, you say, wow, this was, this was Q and A for children. And, <laughs> you know, today it's like, wow, yeah. um, you know, pastors can benefit from, you know, engaging oh, these, yeah. these questions and answers. Now, how was it received, the Heidelberg, once once it was printed? Uh, was it fairly successful early on, or did it take some time for it to, to catch on? Yeah, it was it was definitely a bestseller early on. Hmm. Um, I mean, I think there's there's some some difficulty in knowing exactly, obviously, how you know how many copies uh, have been sold. It's been said to be 
the most widely read book in the world besides the Bible, mm-hmm. um, and Pilgrim's Progress, and I think Thomas Akempis's Akemp- uh, Imitation of Christ. But I, I, I'm not sure if we could we could document that. But um, it it was it was reprinted three times in the first year, uh, so it was it was very popular right from the start. Wow. But did Frederick come under any fire from from any other? church authorities or any other type people after the publication? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was he was basically put in a position like Luther was at Worms, <laughs> where he was called to defend uh, this, this catechism. And, um, you know, I, I mentioned in the book that, you know, he was, he made, he made such a good showing of, of the comfort that he had in Christ and set forth the gospel so clearly that uh, he took on the nickname of Frederick the Pious, and that's you know it's just just amazing. Just think about yeah. um, how how remote that is in our thinking in terms of our politicians. You know, you've got this 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 leader who is known as a godly, pious man who's worthy of of imitation, and so yeah, that was. I think it actually gave him the opportunity to. Uh, you know, isn't that isn't that something? How sometimes oh, conflict yeah. gives us the opportunity to clarify and to gives you a platform. And so I think the 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 hostility that Frederick faced provided a platform for him to, you know, to demonstrate what this theology does to a person like himself. Yeah, and it's uh, it's unfortunate that that he didn't live much longer after its publication, just dying within a few years afterward. What happened after he passed, and who became leader, and how was he in relation to to Frederick? Yeah, well, he, um, you know, his when he when he passed on his son Louis became the ruler in the Palatinate and Louis didn't share his father's convictions. So he, he banned the catechism. Um, as th- this happened a lot, you know, that when one ruler would succeed another, mm-hmm. that the, the theological preferences or convictions of that ruler would, um, would become the new rule. So, uh, Louis, uh, overturned his father's gains, but then also Frederick, uh, Louis didn't live that long either. And then one of uh, Frederick's other sons, Casimir, came back and, and restored his father's legacy, reinstated the, the catechism. So there was a little bit of a back and forth. Um, you know, it's sad today to think about Heidelberg as uh, a city where the catechism is virtually unknown. Um, although uh, we've been encouraged to, to learn that uh, a reform minister in, in Heidelberg today is um, is preparing to translate this book into German to to release it in coordination with the uh, 450th anniversary of the Heidelberg yeah. Catechism in, in, uh, in, in a year. So uh, maybe there'll be some resurgence, but um, yeah, there was, uh, there was some backlash and eventually it did have a, a fading influence. But that's true in Heidelberg, but that's not true around the world. I mean, today the, uh, the churches that benefit from or even subscribe to the Heidelberg are, are, are numerous and just millions of Christians have been have been impacted by this by this uh, manuscript. Absolutely. Uh and and uh we're familiar a little bit with, with some of the work in, in Germany going on and, and uh it's it's great to hear about movements like that to translate it uh to provide uh, more opportunities for people to become familiar with it. Uh, one thing we often hear about with the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a little bit different than than some other traditions, um, and it's in, it's very interesting when we talk about catechetical preaching. Uh, mm-hmm. The catechism is split up into Lord's Days. Uh, what is that 
uh, intended to do, and how is it often used in the church? Yeah, well, this was not a an original feature of the catechism, but within a few years, the uh, 129 questions of the catechism were split up into 52 Lord's Days, uh, which um, made the catechism very conducive to a weekly, or, yeah, to a weekly use and to a, an annual rotation. So. Um, that's that's uh, something that's that, that's still honored in many Reformed churches today. Uh, so I, it's also it's a very conducive document to to preaching. It's it's obviously scriptural. I mean, it's just infused with scripture. It, it references scripture texts, but also just in terms of of a pastoral approach to to preaching, mm-hmm. um, it's very helpful in that way. So we've I believe our congregation has benefited uh, from from hearing the catechism preached, or at least. At least using the catechism as a as a as a structure uh, for preaching. Uh, you know, sometimes you hear an objection to catechism preaching. You say, "Well, you know, you should you should preach the Bible and you shouldn't preach the catechism." <laughs> well, but, sure. You know, I mean, it's a fair objection. But um, what I've said in response to that is, you know, every minister has to make an outline yeah. to every sermon. So, you know, either I can come up with my own outline when I'm dealing with, um, you know, the law of God, or I can work with an outline that's been tried and tested for 450 years and unifies us in that approach as well. So, um, yeah, I think it is very useful for, for preaching, probably more so than, than some of the other confessional documents in Reformed churches. Yeah, and I've heard other churches, uh, you know, especially that have morning and evening services, which is more common in, in the Reformed tradition, that, you know, use one to do the, the Lord's Day uh, sermon through the Heidelberg and the other to, to do your more traditional, like, Lexio Continua type stuff. It's a really good... I, I I think that type of model is really helpful, because then you get a, a breadth of theological topics through the catechism, but yet you still... Can, you still you're still doing exposition and preaching right, from scripture, exactly. but yeah. using like you say as the outline, but then also having the lexio continue it can be can be helpful as well. So you get the breadth of redemptive history as you're moving through books. So it's right. good to have both. Oftentimes, yeah, I think they complement each yeah, other. I do well. too. Yeah. yeah, Jim, did you have it's, something? Uh, yeah, you know, just to follow up on that, you know, it's it's if we could talk about the relationship between biblical theology and systematic theology, I mean, sure. you know, that's, that's one way to make it very clear that, you know, these two are not at odds with one another. No, no. Um, but uh, they're, they do sweetly comply. My, um, <clears throat> my question is, um, you know, you, you have, of course, these two volumes out now, The Quest uh, for Comfort um, on Heidelberg and then Faithfulness Under Fire uh, with regard to the Belgian Confession. Are, is there one in the works for the Synod of Dort? Yeah, there is. I've got I've got the manuscript, um, you know, mostly finished. We're just, uh, um, yeah, kind of interacting with how how to best do this. Yeah. It's been it's been um, it's exciting to work with. I mean, it's it, it, of all of the um, you know the reformed themes. In some ways, the the canons of door is the most popular. Now, not to say that. Most people in the in the broad reform community know about the Cans of Door, but they certainly know about the five points of Calvinism. Um, I think most people just don't realize that the five points of Calvinism actually have uh, have their roots in a confessional document called the Canons of Door. So, um, right. I, I think I, I'm, I'm really excited to be working on this. Uh, it was challenging, and will continue to be challenging. I think until it's finished, to take a you know a, a parliamentary meeting basically and convert that into a children's book so uh, <laughs> sure de- definitely some challenges but um there, what's you know, the working enough... title on that one william um 
Yeah, I'm. I, it's it's still it's still in the process of being worked on. Some something like the the glory of of grace, uh, the story of the canons of of Dorp. I mean, I think the canons nice. really glorify and exalt the grace of God um, in the in you know compared with the the efforts of man, the merits of man, and yeah. so I wanted to wanted to focus on 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 the the notion of sovereign grace somehow in the title. Yeah, but we'll see. Sure. Excellent. Oh, that's this is a fantastic history, and and of course it connects richly with uh, with more of the the Dutch tradition. Uh, that's how it's been handed down and passed down through history. Could you tell us a little bit about your church and uh, the URCNA? Uh, we'd we'd love to hear more about it and uh, to uh, share some information about the denomination, so that we can also, as a Reformed community, better pray and better understand. And perhaps there's people in in Carbondale or uh, Pennsylvania. There's a there's a Carbondale, Illinois, which is I'm more familiar with. But mm-hmm. um, or, or perhaps uh, there are URC churches uh, near others, uh, other listeners. Uh, so we'd, we'd love to hear more about uh, the URCNA and the work the Lord's doing there. Yeah, the URCNA has a relatively brief history. Um, uh, but we have a heritage that goes mm-hmm. back in in this country to you know the 1850s in the Christian Reformed Church, and of course going back to to the Netherlands primarily. Um, we're we're just we're just I'm so excited to be uh, working in in this classes in the URCNA. Um, this is true for the rest of us as well. You know, you you brothers who minister in this area, mm. uh, half the population of the United States is in the East coast, basically. So in the geographical confines of our classes, and as you know, there just, you know, there is not an overwhelming presence of reformed churches in, you know, on the Eastern seaboard. So mm-hmm. it's, it's an exciting area for, for us to be ministering. Um, most of the, most of the URCNA congregations are, uh, concentrated in, um, the Midwest, Michigan, Chicagoland, uh, Iowa. And then there's also a significant presence in, uh, Southern California, yeah. some Northern California, uh, and then Eastern uh, whether um, Western Canada and uh, Ontario as well. Um, so yeah, we're uh, we're excited to be to be part of the Reformed community and and doing our part to to set before people the the glory of grace, the sovereignty of God, and the uh, the hope and the comfort that that gives as we look outside of ourselves uh, into the work of Christ. And obviously, that's something that you know other denominations are doing as well. But we're glad to be part of that. Absolutely, and it's great to hear and to invite uh, you brothers from the R- uh, URC onto the program, and uh, you know, because we're in uh, ecclesiastical fellowship with one another uh, with the OPC, uh, and so we're we're delighted to have you on the program to discuss this book. Let me remind you: the Quest for Comfort, the story of the Heidelberg Catechism, and uh, you can find this book and many other excellent books from Reformation Heritage books. You can do a search for them online and, and bring up their website. Excellent resources for them. And uh, William, your church, Covenant Reformed Church, uh, is at covenantrc.org. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. And so visit them online as well if you're in the Carbondale, Pennsylvania area or know somebody that else that is. We, of course, also want to mention that you can find us online at reformedforum.org. We have several different programs and different resources available all for free at reformedforum.org if you'd like to get a hold of us you can tweet us at reformedforum or send us an email at mail at reformedforum.org and we also ask that you would consider supporting us because we are listener supported you can visit us online at reformedforum.org to help us to continue to produce and distribute all of our programs free of charge we want to thank everybody for listening and we hope you join us again next time 
on Christ the Center.